excuse the pun, but the decarbonisation of shipping fuels has flown a little under the radar for a number of years. More recently, however, fleet owners and technology providers have been working on solutions to help cut emissions from seafaring transporters, with ammonia emerging as a leading candidate. Hello, I'm David Weston, host of Energy Enablers, and in this week's episode, I speak to Elena Skaltriti, CCO at Danish company Topso, to chat all things ammonia in shipping. I caught up with Elena in the green zone of the COP28 negotiations in Dubai, so apologies for the background noise, but enjoy my chat with Elena on how the shipping industry may look in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Elena, thank you so much for joining us on the energy transition today. Um, we often hear about uh, Flugscham or flight shaming uh, and society's attention towards the climate effects of, of flying. Is there a growing awareness uh, also in the shipping industry uh, for this? Uh, and how will alternative fuels like blue and green ammonia address the environmental concerns associated with maritime transport? So the short answer to your question is yes. Uh, we do think there's a raising awareness also for the marine transport. But the two phenomena are very different. So uh, um, as I know, the flu scam or the, uh, the flight shaming uh, was born in uh, the late 2010s uh, in Sweden, uh, where people actually started accusing people of flying and of generating, obviously, uh, pollution. Um, it had a very direct impact in, uh, in Sweden with, uh, you know, an increase by 8% in the, in the trail in the train uh, use and a decrease by 5% in the, in the flights. Um, obviously, something very uh, different from what you see in the marine industry. Uh, flying is something that is very evident also from our personal posts on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. That doesn't happen with uh, marine shipping, which is uh, very much uh, under the radar screen. Um, obviously more because it's uh, used to transport uh, goods rather than to transport people for the great majority. Uh, nevertheless, we think there's a growing consciousness uh, among consumers uh, that also marine transport has uh, a large impact in terms of uh, carbon emission. And, you know, there's an assessment that um, emissions from, uh, from uh, uh, maritime shipping, it's uh, roughly 3%. So roughly the same of what you have with, uh, with aviation. The visibility is simply different, uh, but as uh, companies like an Amazon, an Ikea, a Unilever look into their scope three emission and look into decarbonizing you know, their operations, including shipping, uh, there is more and more demand to uh, the uh, marine industry to look at alternatives. And when you look at the fuel that uh, the shipping industry currently uses, it's actually basically the leftover. So uh, really the, the residue of uh, fuel production with a particular impact uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, um, emissions. Um, there are actually alliances, corporations that are now surfacing like the Zero Emission uh, Maritime Buyers Alliance. Uh, which aggregates a number of buyers, a buyers group that want actually to, uh, to urge uh, the shipping industry to look at alternative fuels with a reduced um, impact. Um, you ask about uh, what alternatives uh, we see in terms of fuels that could fit uh, the, the shipping industry, and there are multiple alternatives. Uh, being in Denmark, we sit very close to one of our, the major shipping companies, and we have closed dialogues. We also have the Center for uh, Zero Carbon Shipping in, uh, in uh, Denmark. 
And there are different preferences and different ideas, but if you look at the uh, official reports, uh, they indicate that by, uh, like the Lloyd Register, they indicate that uh, by 2050, probably 40 to 60% of the fuel used for the uh, shipping, uh, maritime shipping, will be made with ammonia, right. clean ammonia. Yeah. And with clean ammonia, we try to stay away from colors, but it's uh, green ammonia coming from renewable power through electrolysis and then producing ammonia. While with um, uh, low carbon intensity ammonia, it's what normally we know as blue ammonia, yeah. uh, which means basically starting from natural gas uh, and uh, producing hydrogen, capturing uh, the whole uh, CO2 that is emitted in the process, and basically having an ammonia which has a content, a very much reduced content of emission. You, cap you capture up to 99.3% of the CO2 emitted in the process. Um, so there are very different opinions and it's clear as well, if you look at what's already happening, that there will be a mix of fuels, um, ranging from uh, biofuels potentially to, uh, as we say, the clean ammonia, um, e-methanol or renewable methanol uh, and others. And let's say the ratio that they will uh, have, uh, you know, is still to be uncovered, but we truly believe that uh, ammonia will be a major contributor. So why why has Topso opted for ammonia? Is, it, is ammonia the only option that you're you're pursuing from a technological and developmental uh, standpoint? Um, what's the reasoning behind? So so we um, you know the beauty with Topso is that we really have a suite of technologies. When you look at decarbonization, that you are forced to be technology agnostic, and you you are really forced to try to understand what the market needs, what the customer needs, and, um, and, uh, and try to help them uh, implement the technologies we have. Why do I say we are technology agnostic? Because we have technologies for methanol, for e-methanol, for e-ammonia, for blue ammonia, for biofuels, for e-fuels. We have a bit of everything. So we say sometimes we feel like a carpet dealer, you know, <laughs> showing the range of carpets we have and please choose. <laughs> um, but, but so we, uh, we really try to understand what is best for the industry. And um, ammonia seemed to be uh, going to play a major role. Uh, when you look at, let's say, an obvious alternative would be uh, hydrogen. Uh, it would be much easier because you produce hydrogen out of uh, an electrolyzer. You produce uh, blue hydrogen if you like. The problem with hydrogen is, uh, is how you store it and how you transport it. So uh, actually, when you look at ammonia, the, um, uh, the energy density of ammonia is six times higher than, uh, uh, than hydrogen. Now, look at uh, methanol, e-methanol in, uh, in, in different shapes and forms. First of all, methanol contains carbon. So if you want to go to carbon zero, a molecule that contains carbon, it's not the obvious choice. Yeah. You could still do it with uh, renewable methanol, e-methanol, starting from uh, hydrogen and CO2 that you capture from the air. Uh, but we think that's going to be more expensive in the long term. And still the technologies to be developed uh, are not, um, have a technology maturity that is uh, still uh, going for a longer, longer term. Uh, that's the reason why we think uh, ammonia is is going to be the, the choice. And also there are challenges with implementing ammonia as a, as a fuel for shipping. 
its uh, toxicity, the safety aspects, etc. But we do believe, and you see already now in action, um, that, that there are ways to manage that. Ammonia has been used and has been transported for decades around the world. The difference is that it's being used as a fuel. You mentioned some of the Danish shipping firms. Maersk, obviously, quite the major one uh, there. It recently signed a green methanol offtake agreement um, to fuel some of, some of its ships. Is there a risk that the shipping sector has too many choices uh, and that might slow down decarbonization? Um, and therefore, is there an argument to be not so technologically agnostic? I'm, I don't think that's the case. Okay. I'm positive that there might be multiple uh, solutions uh, that actually will kick in with uh, different timing. Um, ammonia, for example, is not around the corner, right? You have to modify or build new vessels that are able to burn yeah. ammonia. So that will be uh, probably a few years down the road. And having methanol that can be implemented straight away, it's a good choice. Yeah. Uh, having said this, if you look at MERSC, very recently, I think it's four days ago, uh, they have announced uh, that they were going to build uh, 10 uh, or have built 10 vessels for the transport of large-scale large transport yeah. of ammonia, but also being uh, driven and fueled by ammonia. So I think there's a consensus in the industry that we will see an evolution uh, and we will transition through different through different fuels. The, the Mask McKinney Muller Center's uh, recent survey indicates that shipping companies need to prepare for fleets running on multiple fuels. Correct. Is Topso, how, how is Topso going to help the shipping industry um, support that transition and, and manage the multiple fuels? We are a technology and solution provider, so uh, that's the role that we, uh, that we can play. Uh, you know, in uh, sustainable aviation fuel, in the sustainable aviation fuel sector, we have decided to actually play even uh, together with Sasol in a joint venture as a producer. So as a developer, uh, build uh, owner and operator of uh, sub plants, this is not what we uh, plan to do for the for the shipping industry. So we will provide technology, which is uh, and solutions, which is what we have been doing for the last uh, eighty years uh, or so. Um, and what we uh, the role we play, I think, is also as a connector, as a facilitator between, uh, let's say, those that want to produce. Uh, the new fuels and uh, the companies that are the final off takers and really bringing in the, the industry uh, to find common solution. The other big role we, uh, we play is certainly as a technology developer. So there are, there are if we look at ammonia, to keep it simple, um, there are technologies that are already commercial available at scale now. I'm talking about low carbon or blue ammonia. Uh, we have uh, many, many projects, um, especially in North America, some of them taking FID uh, as, uh, as we speak. And there we just, you know, support and, uh, and bring together other technology partners to make sure that we capture as much uh, CO2 as we can. On the other side, if you look at, um, at e-ammonia, uh, which is for us, you know, the end game uh, of how ammonia should be produced in a sustainable way, um, we are integrating technologies. We are developing our SOEC technology. You are aware that we have this, taken a, 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 an FID decision summer 2022. Uh, we have a plant in Denmark coming up with a capacity of 500 megawatt a year uh, that will start up uh, end of uh, 2024. And we have to put together that piece of the SOEC technology with the ability of producing 
brain ammonia. And the two uh, technologies have to be integrated. So uh, there is a, um, an integration risk. And we are also looking at new business models uh, to make sure that while there are risks in implementing new technology, we help our customers to uh, mitigate those risks and work together on, uh, on a successful uh, scale-up. So you're having to try and future-proof that technology a little bit? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, are the ships going to be able to take multiple fuel types? Will they be able to run on either methanol or uh, ammonia? Or will it be shipping firms need to have a much more diverse fleet? and therefore there are going to be lots more ships that are required? I'm probably not the best person to answer this question. Uh, my personal take is that will be a uh, diversified fleet okay. of vessels, some of them running on methanol, some of them running on ammonia, maybe some of them running on uh, LNG. Um, so uh, also because as um, you know, the, uh, typically um, um, a vessel uh, for, uh, for shipping lasts 20, 25 years, uh, so as the technologies as well develop, it's a very recent announcement of the development of, a, of an engine that can burn uh, ammonia on a, on a, on a vessel. Uh, that will come through, and as, uh, as the technology develops, also the, the fleet will look different. Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. As you say, it's still quite a new technology. Um, normally, it means costs are quite high. How does blue and green ammonia compare maybe with other uh, alternative fuels and existing fuels? Uh, and how do you see the cost of ammonia coming down over the next sort of few years? So um, if you look at, uh, at um, green ammonia, there was an assessment made that if you, uh, let's say, switch to this, if you will, compare to existing fuel, the total cost of vessel ownership probably goes up by 60, 40 to 60 percent, uh, depending on the route uh, that you're going to use the vessel for. So it's, it's, a, it's a very relevant sum of money. Sure. Um, if you look at e-ammonia, roughly 70% of that is driven by the cost of renewable power. So um, certainly there is a need for, uh, for scaling up technologies and making them more economically viable. When you look at, uh, at blue ammonia, uh, this is a much easier, uh, let's say, uh, option. Uh, first of all, uh, there's a big wave that is coming up for blue ammonia being produced in uh, North America, in the US. Uh, with a lot of incentives actually being under the IRA uh, that actually facilitate, you know, these uh, transitions. So that for sure will be more economically viable, uh, but most of all viable from a techno, techno, technical point of view as uh, the, the, the technology exists. Um, I'm also clear that if this needs to happen, you know, making the comparison with sustainable aviation fuels, the transition actually happens if you have mandates uh, that, uh, that push the industry to move, to move towards that solution. Does that, does, that open, does that open the door to technological um, bias as well? Do government, if governments or regulators prefer a certain fuel over another? Indeed. That's a risk. Indeed. Uh, as with everything that sure. deals with uh, regulations and, uh, and mandates, 
you uh, you bias the industry, you know, not consciously, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. Um, it just happens. So uh, so we're very, let's say that uh, a first good, good move is that the IMO uh, in uh, July 2023 has reviewed their strategy, have committed to transitioning the, uh, the shipping industry with clear targets, which are already for 2030, reducing by 20% the emission, and by 2040 being at a 70% reduction of the emissions and being close to net zero by 2050. So it's it's a huge hockey stick, right? Uh, that is a strategy that needs to be, uh, to be uh, turned into, uh, into clear deadlines and commitments, which are not there. And that needs to be combined, let's say, push the industry to, uh, to, uh, to create the offtake. But at the same time, we really need to have governments to establish the rules in this space. Yeah. Do you see blue ammonia as... Um a bridge to green ammonia and is there how sort of different are the i guess the production technologies i guess the the product itself is the same when it comes out regardless of whether what production it technique it uses um so is blue a bridge to green and therefore are is there a risk of investing in blue hydrogen production and then not getting the rate on uh, return on investment sure so again i'm very clear with the answer which is yes uh, we um, we really, first of all, try to stay away with colors, though this is how the industry knows the different molecules, how we all know the different molecules. And we very much look at uh, carbon intensity. Okay. Um, and if you purely look at that, um, at that perspective, we do have a technology, our Syncor technology, that combined with a carbon capture technology that we do not own, enables uh, the industry uh, to capture 99.3% uh, of the CO2 emission coming out of the process of producing ammonia. So that's why we also call it clean ammonia. Available now, available at scale. Um, as you say, it's a matter of investments. Uh, from uh, some studies that are out in the industry, uh, there is an expectation that um, it takes 20, roughly 20 years uh, to pay back for an investment in such a, in such a plant. It's probably less if you already have an infrastructure in place. So we see many companies who currently operate in gray ammonia for the fertilizer industry, looking at diversifying their portfolio, bringing in first blue ammonia and later uh, green ammonia, or maybe a hybrid. That's what we see as well a lot. Um, and embarking on the transition. So they know very well what they do. Uh, they, uh, they just do it with, uh, with a lower carbon intensity overall. So I'm very clear. Yes, I see, I see that that will be the transition. When you look at the curves uh, of how, uh, let's say, blue hydrogen, or uh, it's not for ammonia, but you can look at uh, blue hydrogen and, uh, and green hydrogen, how the cost curve will evolve in the future. Well, first of all, nobody has a crystal ball. Right. So... Uh, um, and you see that as the years go by, uh, you know, the, uh, and depending on, uh, you know, what are the assumptions on the cost of gas uh, and of renewable power, you see the, the curves shifting. But there is a general consensus that it will take a couple of decades until the, you know, the two lines crosses. So, and the demand, if our assumptions are right, both in terms of use as, as a fuel, but as well as use of ammonia as an energy carrier, because we have many countries, including Europe, uh, but as well when you look at Korea, uh, Japan, that are considering using ammonia as an energy carrier to then either co-fire it or fire it in power plants or converting it back 
to hydrogen through ammonia cracking. So in reality, you know, if we are right, the demand is going to be uh, uh, so substantial uh, that, that we will see a coexistence of low carbon uh, intensity ammonia, blue ammonia, and uh, green ammonia. So let's say we don't see the industry being particularly shy about investments in, uh, in blue ammonia. Okay. Um, but the shipping industry is quite known for its uh, maybe conservative nature. Um, how are you planning to address the industry's uh, hesitancy and promote cleaner fuels? So it is true that it is uh, perceived as a, as a conservative industry. I, I would say, though, that when you look at the aviation industry, it is probably as conservative. Uh, but I think there is a general uh, uh, raising consciousness that something needs to be done and that this 3% need to be tackled uh, and that probably it will need to be tackled in, uh, in subsequent steps. So actually, you see a lot of investments going into exploring, you know, uh, technologies and, and solutions. So really, the industry is looking at solutions, how this can be done. So I'm pretty confident. But again, as you see, for any energy transition, uh, you need to drive it with regulations. You need to drive it with incentives. It's either incentive or mandates. And a commitment from the IMO will be uh, fundamental. Uh, are you hopeful that things like, um, you mentioned the IRA in the US, but also the carbon border adjustment mechanism in Europe, is that gonna help mobilize the industry to really take it uh, a lot more seriously? Again, the short answer, I think, yes, indeed, indeed. The challenge with, uh, with this is, uh, is to maintain a, a, a level playing field. Um, and, and I think this is something that needs to be uh, tackled. So really global, uh, global guidance and, uh, and an alignment uh, across the different, uh, the different governments is, um, is highly recommended. Um, and just quickly, we mentioned, you mentioned the, um, I guess the toxicity of ammonia is widely known. Uh, and while it has been transported for, for many years, um, if it was to become a major option for the shipping sector, that trade and that transportation and that handling of ammonia will have to scale up uh, significantly. How is Topso helping to address some of those safety concerns? So we, uh, we do our best uh, to contribute with the technology we have. Uh, we, we even have an experience as, as owners of, uh, of ammonia plants, but certainly our biggest experience is in, is in the uh, uh, build-up of these plants, but as well in, in running them, in, uh, especially in the first phase, uh, in the startup phase. So we do a lot of knowledge that has been, uh, that has been developed throughout the years, and you know, part of the value that we want to deliver to uh, to our customers and to stakeholders in the industry is with sharing uh, this uh, um, uh, this knowledge. Having said this, there is an existing ammonia uh, industry that is out there and that holds precious um, experience in in dealing with uh, with this nice molecule. Uh, but they're do you think they're prepared for scaling up onto a much global more global scale? Uh, I, I do think so. Um, actually, I think it's also a great opportunity for the current players in the ammonia world. And, and we see them actually uh, considering what other roles uh, they can play uh, to facilitate the transition. Also, obviously, being a good business opportunity for expanding out of their core business. I'd love to know a little bit more your, your background, um, Elena. How did you get to where you are today? What's your, yeah, 
What's your background? So um, I'm a chemist uh, by education. So I'm a scientist, uh, but actually as, uh, as I left the university, first job was in a as, a, as, a, as a field technical representative doing analysis in uh, water treatment plants. Um, and then I thought that really what I liked most was, uh, was engaging in the more commercial part of the world. And I, and I had many, many different roles in, uh, in different industries, many years in the specialty chemical industry, uh, working for uh, first an American company, then I worked for BSF. And the last 10 years before joining Topso, I worked for a company based uh, in Korea. Um, so very strong commercial background, but combined with, uh, I think, a, a, a pretty solid um, uh, technical yeah. uh, background. And where do you think that um, interest came from about chemistry and, and chemicals? And oh, that, that, that was always there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I very much like philosophy and literature, but my great passion always uh, was with, with science. So already as a, as a small kid. Mm. And, and did you uh, ever see yourself working within decarbonization and the energy transition? So um, actually, it's, it's been a different journey, mine. Um, uh, I've worked for many years in, uh, let's say, sectors which are by far less attractive in terms of uh, how you contribute to, uh, to the environment. Worked many years close to the plastic industry. And, and honestly, as I turned uh, 50 years old and uh, discussing also uh, in the family, I really thought I wanted to make a change. Okay. Uh, and to, uh, you know, for the uh, few other years that I, I want to be in the industry, uh, to really try to make a positive contribution. Um, and, and I was approached by a headhunter uh, for uh, different positions, but actually when I started to know more about Topso and also the transformation journey that Topso is, uh, is on, I found that very attractive and really feeling that I could contribute with something positive uh, to, uh, to mankind. Mm. So you more recently considered chemicals as a potential tool in the energy absolutely. transition. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even in my old industry, we always look at how to, uh, you know, how to um, enable uh, circularity. Uh, so I was always attracted by the theme, but I think with Topso, we, um, we have such a potential to make a difference that it's just uh, amazing. And are you seeing um, perhaps a new uh, generation of recent chemical graduates um, really taking an interest in Topso and seeing their work as a potential benefit for the environment and the energy transition? Absolutely. First of all, we, uh, you know, if you look at how uh, the, the, the Topso population has changed over the years, we now have a lot of young people coming in. Uh, we have a large percentage of our, of our pool of people that is uh, less than five years with the company. And we have an amazing pool of talents, very young people, super committed, that actually, you know, finding Topso a place where they can uh, deploy their energies and creativity. Bringing new ideas, yeah. Uh, absolutely, that's what we need. You know, the maximum creativity is actually not at my age, but when you're just fresh out of school. So we need a lot of that. And we, uh, we really try to attract them. I think the, uh, the change also in the branding of the company, the change in the, in the purpose that we have for ourselves, has really helped uh, that we are much more attractive for, uh, for the younger generation. Uh, my final question is one I ask all of our guests uh, on the podcast. Will the energy transition succeed? Yes, there's no other way. <laughs> we have to make it succeed. And I think uh, there are um, all the elements are there. And we just have to be brave and very insistent to make it happen.
Uh, Elena, thank you so much for joining us on Energy Enablers. Thank you. Thanks to Elena again for joining me on the podcast. What technologies do you think are going to play a role in decarbonisation of shipping? Is ammonia the answer? Join the conversation with other industry experts by becoming a Foresight member today. Visit foresightmedia.com or follow the link in the show notes to get a one-month free trial with full access. And until next time, thanks for listening.